Hi FM Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, good morning and welcome to Tech Talk right here and only on Chai FM. And I am sitting in not-so-sunny Lisbon. It's autumn here as well. The weather report is mild to showers, and uh, otherwise it's been fantastic. Well, I'm in Lisbon for something called the Web Summit. And the Web Summit over the last eight years started in Dublin, cool place to go to, but has moved to Lisbon because it just grew beyond anything anyone actually thought it would, is a huge technology-focused conference. But it's not gizmos and gadgets, which is a particular focus of mine and I enjoy thoroughly, but it's more about the startup and new technology scene. And it's become a place where people such as Tony Blair, um, the most interesting, the European Commission, and so many other leaders in, 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 in various industries, leaders in politics, and just spokespersons of many, many different fashion houses, you name it, come and discuss their take on the world, the current world we live in, the world that is infused with technology. It doesn't matter which way you go, where you turn, there's technology in absolutely everything. And it is, I mean, by the numbers, there are around about 70,000 attendees, all descending on uh, Lisbon over a period of three days. And um, they have five or six different stages, which there are a whole host of different talks. And anything between fifteen and 20,000 people crowded into the main Altus Arena to hear the keynote speakers, which included vice presidents from Microsoft, um, Tim Berners-Lee, who's the found, who was the founder is the founder of the internet, and so many more really, really interesting people. But anyway, I'll be talking all about what happened at Web Summit, what I saw, the robots I spoke to, the technology that I got a glimpse into, and the big trends, the big upcoming sort of things that are going to start affecting our lives in the next couple of years. But it's been an absolute overload of info, learnings, discussions from wide-ranging from Brexit to Trump with the elections in America uh, all of two days ago, or the midterm elections. And all of this had a massive impact on what was discussed at Web Summit. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the Tech Talk Cafe segment. But right now, what I'd like to do, as usual, is talk about some of the news of the week. And there's been lots happening in South Africa. You see, I leave the country and uh, all sorts of things start happening. Well, the big news of the week is that Telcom have announced that they are moving their roaming from MTN, and my family will be quite happy, most of them are on Telcom, moving their roaming from MTN to Vodacom. And it's actually a huge deal. Not that the MTN and Vodacom networks aren't fairly equivalent, but there are a couple of little wrinkles, a couple of sort of technical things that are happening which are going to be significant. The first and most important thing, the switch from MTN to Vodacom, is going to start from 1 December, and the full switchover is planned for mid-2019. So obviously it's a rolling out system which simply links all the telecoms um, network to Vodacom networks. But what, as I said, one of the key and most important things is that this will allow full roaming. Right now, if you're on the telecom network and you, you didn't have decent signal on, on telecom or you're out of the telecom range of their towers, you switch to MTN, but they only had 2G and 3G roaming. 
Now, 3G roaming wasn't too bad. The 3G signal on MTN is pretty good, but you cannot even begin to compare to the full 4G experience or the LTE experience. Uh, Vodacom call it 4G, uh, MTN call it LTE. Well, the new agreement with Telcom and MTN allows full roaming across the entire Vodacom 4G network, which also includes a massive amount of roaming on the new 4G Plus network from uh, Rain. So definitely MTN, uh, Vodacom's network rather, is one of the the better ones, along with uh, a very equivalent performance from MTN, but essentially it is the biggest and widest network in the country. And what they also announced is that it'll be completely unrestricted roaming, which is doesn't sound like much, and um, it will also be entirely seamless. So if you're on a call and you happen to be on a telecom uh, tower, which you won't know, just your phone says telecom and you're chatting away, and you switch across to, an, to a Vodacom tower, it'll be entirely seamless. You won't even notice that you switched from one tower to the next. You'll carry on talking, driving down the highway, doing whatever you're doing, and the call should seamlessly switch without dropping. Right now, the roaming deal with MTN is not seamless. So if you're talking on, on, on uh, a telecom phone to a, you know, and you, you roam from their tower to an MTN tower, you drop the call and you have to reestablish it, which is a real pain in the neck. Um, no more of that. And that, as I said, should start rolling out pretty much from next month. And the other benefit, as I said, it's unrestricted across the entire country. So if or should, listen, uh, telecom, I'm not recommending this, but should you wish, you can switch your telecom phone to only connect to the Vodacom network and you will always be on Vodacom. You won't move from tel- to telecom at all. You'll just always be roaming on Vodacom and you'll definitely be getting some of the best sort of quality in terms of data and other assorted interesting features of the network. Well, uh, we'll be back in two seconds. We just have to have a quick break for our sponsors, and then I'll tell you about the other roaming agreement from CellC. So it's all change in the mobile networks straight after this. Hi FM Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, welcome back. And uh, to add to the exciting news around the whole, this is not actually new news, but CellC have also announced that they're changing their roaming partner. Up to now, CellC also roamed on the Vodacom network. And again, they had an older roaming agreement, the same sort of thing that happened with MTN. In other words, they did not have seamless transition. So if you're on CellC and you were driving on the highway and you moved from a CellC to a telecom tower, it wasn't seamless. You dropped the call, you had to reestablish a real pain in the neck. Also, it was only up to 3G roaming. So you could switch to their data network where there was no connectivity of CellC. And uh, you would able to get 3G, but not 4G. Well, they've also signed a new agreement with MTN. So it's all switch in the industry. And again, that agreement includes full roaming of 4G, 2G and 3G. So if you switch to the MTN network, you will, and you're on cell C, you will get a far superior uh, experience and a far superior connection. However, there is one major difference between the roaming agreement that Vodacom has signed with, uh, with Telcom and the one that, that cell C have signed with MTN. They will only specifically roam in areas where they do not have connectivity. So if you're in the major metro areas where actually I think Celsius has got a great network, 
some of the best voice quality that I've experienced on a mobile phone in South Africa. But that's a story for another time. On Celsi, if you're outside of their footprint or outside of their network coverage, you will then be able to roam onto MTN. So you can't do like you can do on, on, on Telcom and set your phone onto a full roaming setup. Now, that's just actually something very interesting. If any of you guys out there have got uh, a phone or you're using Celsi or you're using uh, Telcom, the, the general sort of consensus is that you should not leave your phone on roaming. But with the fact that these networks roam internally on other people's networks. So Celsi roams on, on Vodacom present and switching across to MTN in the next couple of months. And Telcom, exactly the same thing, currently roaming on MTN and switching across to Vodacom in the next couple of months. You should leave your roaming on on your phones. So if you've been struggling with signals, um, both Vodacom, both Celsi and Telcom, for whatever reason, Go to, go to the settings of your phone and turn roaming on and you'll find that you'll actually end up getting a much better experience because the phone data, you won't notice anything. It should automatically seamlessly switch across a small pause in web browsing. But voice calls at the moment on both those networks will, will drop when you switch from the one network to the other. But at least you will have coverage where you didn't have coverage before. So all's happening in the the mobile network business, they're all switching their roaming. And it's very important. Just leave your roaming on. The only time you switch your roaming off is like when I, you're like myself, who's sitting in Lisbon. Absolutely 100% do not leave roaming on and cost you 500 rand a megabyte for data. And, then, and so and MTN are very kind. They sent me an SMS to say, we will let you know every time you use 500 rands worth of data. No, thank you very much. Do not roam internationally on data. But in South Africa, roaming across these two networks makes a lot of sense. And in some respects, I think that the telecom deals uh, that they offer on their network, which includes their lit, you can stream for free, you can stream movies for free, and their pricing and data, now that they're going to be on a combination of telecom network and Vodacom network, will be pretty compelling. It's some of the best deals on the market right now. And it might be a good idea to get involved or get yourself a contract now before prices potentially change. But anyway, I think it's a great it's a great thing that the networks have all reshuffled and we've got much more modern roaming agreements in place. Now, before we get to Tech Talk Cafe, I've got a couple of other interesting news things. Um, Samsung, there's been a lot of talk about this over the last couple of weeks in the tech industry. Samsung previewed its first foldable phone yesterday. Not to be outdone, a Chinese company last week announced, Royale they called, announced a foldable phone. But there's been huge <clears throat> technology improvements in, in, in screens. And one of the major changes over the last couple of years is a move to OLED, which is an organic LED screen. And the benefit of OLEDs and plastic OLEDs, which is to be more specific, is that they're ultra thin. They do not need backlights. In other words, each dot on the screen, each pixel, each little tiny colored dot emits light by itself. So you don't need to worry about having any form of lighting structure behind the screen like you do with liquid crystal, which makes, apart from the fact that liquid crystals glass, you can't bend that very well. Plastic OLED screens can be rolled up. They can be folded. They can be moved. There are just so many different ways that you can use 
the plastic OLED. And finally, Samsung, who are the leaders in, in mobile phone plastic OLEDs, showed off at their developer conference on Wednesday in San Francisco. They call it the Infinity Flex Display, as they would. They showed off their brand new foldable phone. So essentially what it is, it's a, it's a, it looks like a normal phone when you look at it head on other than being slightly thicker because there's two parts to it. But when you fold it out, it doubles to almost a 14-inch um, tablet. So it's a basic 7-inch, well, basic. It's a fairly high-tech 7-inch phone when it's folded up. And when it unfolds, it becomes a, a huge tablet, which makes, I don't know, makes a sort of sense. But they also announced, and this is where it gets really interesting. So this is not something that we're not going to see. We are going to see this phone in the next couple of months, they reckon that it'll be out in the second quarter, so, so from April 2019. And they announced a huge amount of developer kits and tools and new software to make such a phone really smart and to make it really work. And they reckon that you can probably open and fold that phone up to 135,000 times before it can even start showing anywhere. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's going to happen to the screen? Is it going to crack? Is it going to break? Is it going to somehow get damaged? Well, Samsung are very, very clear about that. You need to spend years flexing your display to get um, to get that thing to break. And LG have also announced that they're looking at doing something like that as well. So I expect to see quite a change in smartphones. Up to now, pretty much every single smartphone has just been this squarish, oblong, slightly thinner, slightly taller, glass-backed front and back brick um, or candy bar, if you want to call it that. And they haven't really changed in form factor or shape or size at all. Well, roll on the big changes. I mean, there's been some interesting stuff going on in the smartphone space, some incredible tech coming in the smartphone space. And now we've got foldable phones. So all of them, ZTE, all the major manufacturers, Huawei, all of them are trying to get or rush to be the first to get a foldable phone to market and expect to see a lot more happening in that space. And for the vast majority of people, it makes a lot of sense to have a phone that can be fairly compact, fairly small for everyday use. And should you want to read, you want to do some creative work, manage photos, do some video work, un unfold the phone, such science fiction. It really does sound like science fiction. You can just unroll it, unfold it. And there you go. You've now got a double the size phone, which you can roll up or fold up and pop in your pocket and off you go. So well done, Samsung. It's uh, been a great idea, something that uh, we've been looking forward to for quite some time. And now it's here, the science fiction of having a little roll up or fold up phone in your pocket is really <laughs> not science fiction anymore. It's right here. It's with us. And expect to see the actual finished product hit the streets in the next, well, Absolutely, in the next couple of months. So well done to them. And it's definitely the way to go. And on that note, we're going to have a quick break for our sponsors. And then I'll be back with all the news, views and exciting stuff that I saw and listened to and experienced at Web Summit. with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, welcome back. And now we're going to take a deep dive into the past couple of days that I've been spending running around the Web Summit. Now, the Web Summit is at a huge um, showgrounds on the coast 
in Lisbon. And I must tell you, what an amazing city. Super friendly people, amazing food, interesting um, sort of churches and museums and you name it. It's just been a really interesting time to wander around. And Web Summit pretty much takes over the whole place. There's stickers everywhere. Whatever you do, you see them. It's just a huge event for Lisbon. And the, the new Altus Arena, well, it's not so new. It's been around a while, which interestingly, I discovered I've been here before, but I didn't realize the entire arena, massive arena for 20,000 people, um, is made of entirely of wood, which is quite, it's built a little bit like a ship, which uh, makes sense with the sort of seafaring credentials of the Portuguese people. But anyway, this the Altus Arena was where Web Summit started, where it opened this year. And it opened with a really interesting talk from Tim Berners-Lee. Now, Tim Berners-Lee is in the tech industry, is pretty much considered the founder of the internet. He was one of the, the, the researchers at a little university in England who decided to take existing technologies where universities were starting to be connected internally and they decided to share some of their technology with each other externally. So a couple of universities hooked up a, a, a net as they called it at the time, and they started sharing electronic data. And that became the foundation. It was called ARPANET in those days. And that became the foundation for what we know today as the World Wide Web. And Tim Berners-Lee is credited for setting the the initial standards and setting up the infrastructure or sort of the, the sort of technological rules for the infrastructure that created the Internet. And I mean, very, very few of us can imagine a world without some form of connectivity. We're just talking about seamless roaming across mobile devices across South Africa. It works pretty much anywhere you go in the world. And we are all connected in a hyper, hyper, hyper connected way. Always on, always connected, always receiving data, getting messages from our friends, WhatsApp calling people across the planet with absolutely no thought to the cost. I mean, at one stage, every time someone called you, it actually happened to us <laughs> while we were in Lisbon, called an older family member, and they decided to, well, we'll talk quickly. I didn't. I felt like pointing out we're talking on data on WhatsApp. It doesn't matter how quickly we talk. It really doesn't use a lot of data to talk. But at one stage, to make a phone call from South Africa to anywhere in the world was a big deal. It cost a fortune. Initially, it had to be set up. Now, you simply use your WhatsApp or whatever, Skype. In fact, I'm bringing this entire program to you guys via Skype, sitting in my hotel room, talking on my laptop. And it works absolutely perfectly. The quality is great. The bandwidth, pretty much wherever you go, is more than adequate. But with it has come a lot of really some good, some bad. But generally, Tim Berners-Lee announced something that I think has very little chance of succeeding. But I, I, I absolutely applaud the thought process that went behind it. What he's proposed is something called the contract for the web. And, and the reason, the sort of genesis of this whole idea came from a very simple fact. By 2019, which is, cut, well, two months away, probably in the first bit of 2019, the world, 50% of the world's population will be connected to the Internet. Now, that sounds, as my wife said to me, what about the other 50%? 
But understand, if 50% of all the human beings on this planet are connected to the Internet and you start taking out children under the age of, let's say, 12, today I was going to say 15, but children between 12 and 15 are more tech savvy than most of us. So you can't ignore them. They're definitely connected. But you take the children out. You take a lot of older folk, people that are no longer involved in business who perhaps are not connected and certain deep rural areas that just have no ability to connect islands and mountainous regions and some some places that are really difficult to connect you probably find that between 70 and 80 percent of the economically active urban people are connected to the internet which is an absolutely frightening stat and along with that has come a host of really, really problematic issues. Things that really talk about, um, you know, there's been so much talk about Facebook using, misusing your data. There's been so much talk about um, all the various platforms leaking your data, data hacks, and all this sort of stuff. So what Tim Berners-Lee has proposed is a form of contract that, essentially makes the, the web or the internet safe and accessible for everyone. And it's it's really difficult to even understand what that means. But essentially, it's back to the utopian world where the internet was essentially free, information was freely shared, there was no nobody getting involved. And um, it, it, it certainly does make a lot of sense. Now, the problem that we really have around all of that is simply that it's almost impossible to conceive of a world without the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks interfering and intercepting and dealing with absolutely everything that we do. The amount of data and the amount of growth of data over the next couple of years that these various platforms are going to have about you, your activities on the web, your browsing activity, your driving activity, your friends activity is just unbelievable. And it makes a lot of sense to have a sort of contract between the various parties. And he was proposing it between governments, Google and Facebook, probably for reasons best known to themselves, are on board with this project because any good publicity, considering what's been going on with them in the last little while, is good publicity. But anyway, they've proposed this whole contract for the web where things are, are much more regulated, much more organized. The whole rise of fake news has created enormous distrust in what you're reading on the web. So all of this stuff needs to, and the manipulation of of uh, elections and all this sort of thing. So there's huge, huge impact of, of the various sort of call it the negative side of the web. And he's proposing that governments, big business, and you and I all subscribe to a contract whereby we try to keep the web clean, keep the web free, and, and available to the other 50% who are somehow not connected. And that brings enormous um, good and enormous benefit to the average person, which most of us wouldn't even begin to think of. You take it for granted, you go online, you don't even think about what's going on behind the scenes to keep the web safe, to keep the web free, and to keep the web accessible at prices that most people can actually uh, achieve. So it was it was just great thinking. And in many ways, as I say, it's probably not practical. You're not going to get China to subscribe to any sort of web contract where they keep things free and disorganized or uh, organized. 
considering they have the greatest Chinese firewall in the world, the same as the Great Wall of China can be seen from space, the history will look back on the Chinese internet and consider that they built an entire internet outside of the Western world's internet. They have their own Google, they have their own Facebook, they have their own Twitter, they have their own um, WhatsApp, and none of those connect in any way, shape or form to the existing ones that you and I use. I mean, you land in China, you turn on your phone, none, even if you put a Chinese SIM in, connect to Wi-Fi, none of the Google services that you've become used to, maps, mail, whatever, work at all. Only the Chinese equivalents. And guess what? They're all in Chinese. So it's extremely super not useful when you land in China to have connectivity because you can't read anything. You know where you are. You just can't read where you are. So it's quite a a strange, strange, strange world we live in where things are not free, things are not easy, things are not egalitarian in any which way, shape or form. So roll on, but I think it definitely does create the conversation about how the whole um, use and, and, and nature of the internet has changed tremendously. And the conversation at Web Summit, certainly on the main stage, has absolutely been about freedom. It's absolutely been about regulation. We had the head of um, technology for the European Union talking about it. And we even had Tony Blair on the stage talking about Brexit. There was a lot of politics. There was no question that the American midterm elections had an enormous impact on the technology space. And the one benefit of Web Summit is that it brought a ton of really influential people, heads of Google, heads of Facebook, heads of, of so many the European Union, um, governments, you name it. We had the UN here as well, all looking to find out what the next big thing in tech is and how the world can make technology better for everybody. I know that sounds, again, utopian, but the simple fact is that this technology is definitely a platform, a program, a, a system that transcends national government. It transcends petty sort of local issues that most people have. It connects people across the world in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. I mean, the rise, the other huge thing that we were talking about, and I went to many, many discussions around the whole rise of artificial intelligence, the whole rise of robotics. And there were a number of really interesting robots. Um, I met Sophie. Personally, didn't really spend a lot of time with her. There were about 300 other journalists in the room all trying to talk to Sophie. And then there was an Internet failure and they had to rush around trying to find another cable to plug Sophie in. But Sophie is that humanoid robot that actually is a citizen of Saudi Arabia, which today, since the latest news around Saudi Arabia, is not particularly a good thing. But essentially, she is an almost humanoid robot. She looks humanoid. Apparently, she has arms and legs that can be attached, which was quite funny. She was sitting without arms and legs in the in the conference room. But essentially, she responds in an incredibly human way. She speaks in an incredibly human fashion. And at this stage, that is not true artificial intelligence. There's no question that this is not a self-aware thinking robot. But it's incredibly difficult when you in, in, in sort of casual light conversation. And I mean, Sophie was wielding questions from the floor in multiple accents, multiple languages, 
fact, the one journalist stood up and said, Sophie, I met you last year at another press conference. Do you remember me? And that flummoxed the, the, the robot somewhat. I don't, I think this was not probably the same unit that had been used in the previous press conference. But even, this, or rather, in spite of those difficult questions, it is remarkable to see the rise in intelligence of machines. And it is very clear that this is definitely become a fe- is going to become a feature of absolutely every technology going forward. But one of the most insightful talks that I listened to was from Robert Bosch, uh, the company, not the person, one of their representatives. I forget his name right now. I've got it written and down, and I will probably do an article about it. But essentially, he explained what Bosch as a company are doing around autonomy, um, they create some of the, the main subsystems for most cars. The, the brakes, the ABS system was invented by Bosch. Um, most of the cars that you drive today, certainly the German ones, have Robert Bosch uh, equipment, all the electronics, all the, the computers that run most of the platforms within the um, within the, the mm. cars themselves are, are created, built, maintained and sold by Bosch. Apart from the washing machines and tumble dryers and all the other white goods that they create, they're a massive global company. They explain they've got development centers in India, China, America, Europe. And in many ways, they are at the forefront of what is possible in consumer tech for you and I. And they made an incredibly important point, artificial intelligence or machine learning as it should be better known right now, because There is no real artificial intelligence in anything that you can buy or anything that we played with. Even Sophie the Robot wasn't artificial intelligence. Every interaction was scripted to some point. I mean, there is definitely some sort of processing going on which makes it fairly spontaneous, but there isn't real thought going on. And what Robert Bosch highlighted, which was absolutely fascinating, is that for the next foreseeable future, they have an obligation to bring their customers, you and I, through their cars, be it Mercedes, be it BMW, be it VW, doesn't matter who uses their technology. They have to bring them a level of certainty, guarantee, and protection for future. You don't want to buy a car now and the technology is so obsolete in the next year that you can't repair it. So the use of smart machines, the use of machines that use machine algorithms um, are definitely massively on the rise. Computing power is becoming quite trivial. You can buy it in a phone that has more processing power than the average laptop, for want of a better word. And all of this stuff is heading towards smarter and smarter things. These things will not only be far smarter than they are right now. In other words, when you switch them on, they will do certain things that you wouldn't even begin to think of a year or two ago, but at the same time, they're not going to start thinking for themselves. They definitely are not going to be totally science fiction-y other than foldable phones, which are very science fiction-y. And they will still be smart. They will definitely be more useful than they were in the past, but they will still be recognizably your washing machine or your tumble dryer. They will just do smarter things. So, for example, the tumble dryers will only use electricity. In Europe, it's a big deal. Hopefully, it'll come to South Africa at some point. But after a certain time at night, because electricity is not something you can store, mostly, unless you're Tesla, which stores everything. But electricity is generated and you use it or you lose it. 
But now imagine after 10 o'clock at night, most people go to bed, they switch off their lights, they switch off their machines, and yet the generating capacity of your electricity system remains the same. So if you could have a really smart system where every single washing machine in a country only starts working after 10 o'clock at night, you could you could absolutely offer discounts for the use of electricity in low peak periods. And the machines themselves will be smart enough to take cognizance of what's going on and switch across to that. So smart machines are definitely a huge trend. More, so many of the startups were offering you know, advanced analytics, advanced AI, as they call it, or machine learning algorithms, and simply the, ab- the ability of AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Services, and all these other companies to offer massive computing power at commodity prices, dollars a month, literally, to have access to these massive subsystems. And they were all there showing off their various wares, systems, and platforms, and offering massive training to a lot of their attendees. And a lot of the startups that I spoke to that I looked at are using these platforms to create the smartest and most brilliant um, systems. And as I can see, we're almost running out of time, but I will mention one. There was a a small startup, not so small, but fairly well funded small startup that went up on stage for, and and I hope today will win startup of the year, essentially to drive a um, autonomous car. Right now, the vast majority of these cars use a system called LIDAR, which is laser radar, um, in order to map out the world around the autonomous vehicle in 3D. And that little unit to give you complete free autonomy, not like the systems that are in the Teslas and the Mercedes and the BMs right now, but essentially to give complete autonomy, you need currently that LiDAR system, which sells for around about $80,000 per unit, which is obscene amount of money. And we're talking about a million rand a unit, which is not commercially viable. Well, this little company called M5 or Group 5, I think it is, have discovered that using a camera in an iPhone 5 with a processor in the iPhone 5, using their smart algorithms and their smart programming and using what they call machine learning for cameras, are able to do exactly the same job to the same efficiency as um, a LiDAR system for approximately 14 US dollars. And they are pitching to investors, and, and I have no doubt. They reckon it's a $1.2 trillion market going forward because self-driving cars or self-aware cars are definitely going to become a feature in the next couple of years. But instead of an $80,000 high-tech piece of equipment, they believe with a $14 camera, similar to the one that's built into an iPhone 5, they can do exactly the same mapping, exactly the same image recognition of objects and things. So it's absolutely unbelievable what a couple of guys literally in their garage can do. This company could potentially be the next Google, the next um, Facebook in terms of what they do. And all they'll be charging, as I said, in order to make some money, they'll be charging each car manufacturer for every car that this system is installed in a couple of dollars a month for the use of their system. The camera itself is trivial. A $14 camera is cheaper than a cigarette lighter in a, in a car. And you put a couple of those um, cameras front and rear on a, on a car, couple of two really smart autonomous uh, technologies, not running on big data centers. You don't need connectivity. All the processing is happening in the car itself could pretty much change the way we look at things and certainly make it very viable to have a really inexpensive, autonomous, self-driving car. 
So on that note, I can see we've almost run out of time. I then begin to touch on some of the stuff that I saw at Web Summit, but it has been an unbelievable blast. I'm going to mention one more thing straight after the break. So stay tuned. We'll be back straight after this. High FM Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, welcome back. And before we uh, sort of end the whole Web Summit thing and start talking about my gadget of the week, which this week has been the Huawei Mate 20 Pro um, smartphone, which was launched launched two weeks ago. In fact, it went on sale on the 1st of November in South Africa. Anyway, I've been fortunate enough to have it for the last few weeks, and I've been using it all over Lisbon. Great to see how things work out when you travel, um, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I just want to mention a couple more things about Web Summit. One of the interesting things which I didn't realize is how political technology has become. There's no question that the European Union has been at the forefront of regulation. I mean, they essentially forced uh, Microsoft many, many years ago to unbundle the Microsoft Internet browser from the operating system, which at the time I think was Windows 95. And that gave rise to massive competition in the browser space. And uh, now we've got another com- company called Google with a Google Chrome browser that essentially has uh, now in the same sort of monopoly position that Microsoft was back then. And guess what? The European Union has forced them to start unbundling that browser from mobile phones because they believe that it's not fair to the smaller sort of companies that have options. So Europe has always been at the forefront of regulation around technology. And in many cases, technology far outstrips the amount of power and the amount of resources that the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons of this world have to create new technology far outstrips any regulator's ability to, number one, understand the technology, and number two, come up with coherent, proper regulation that stays current, because as soon as they issue a new sort of regulation, the internet moves on, the world technology moves on, and the stuff's obsolete before, or the regulation's obsolete before you can even implement it. And they're very, very, very aware of this, and they're very aware of how quickly things move, and they're trying to create frameworks and processes that are much more sort of flexible and and can adjust to the new world that we live in. And part of that, again, as I said, is the whole fake news um, issue, how the World Wide Web and and Facebook and various platforms have been manipulated by third parties to use to change public perception. So there's a lot, there was a ton of talk around that. And uh, as I said, they had Tony Blair on. He was talking about the impact of technology on Britain, on how Brexit is going to change that sort of way. Because right now, so many of the in education are pan-Europe. In other words, they work across Britain, they work across Europe, they have sort of connections across everything. And when Britain leaves, if they leave at some stage, the European Union, all of this stuff falls away and it becomes a huge mess. Well, um, David Cameron was unbelievably outspoken. He said, as far as he's concerned, the worst mistake England's ever done. And he will fight tooth and nail till the last moment to try to get Britain to stay in the European Union and to remain. And it was a message that was unbelievably well received by most of the people who were sitting in the audience. It was quite incredible to see how 
European the conference actually is, even though it had a, a full-on global. Most of the speakers were American. Most of the um, companies, the big companies were there. Um, and they were definitely talking about all the latest technology. And another really fascinating chat, which I had with a guy by the name of Christopher Wiley, who was the whistleblower in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. He was really interesting. And during a panel debate, he was just talking about how the internet really does need to be regulated. So if we can, he commented, if we can regulate nuclear power, why can't we regulate some code, which is the internet? And he said that in many ways, um, it was... The, the the awareness around everything to do with privacy was sparked by this Cambridge Analytica thing where millions upon hundreds of millions of people's data was misused for all the wrong reasons by companies to create situations that none of us would be particularly keen on. Anyway, that was Web Summit. I'm going to probably have a couple more really interesting as soon as I've been able to gather my thoughts um, We'll probably talk a little bit more about that, but I can see our time is running out really quickly. So I'm going to do a quick review of the Mate 20 Pro. This is without question one of the most powerful mobile devices that has ever hit South Africa uh, or the world for that matter. And it for, for a couple of really good reasons. One, it is using one of the first uh, Huawei, call it the first seven nanometer processor. Well, in fact, Apple, with their new iPhone XR, XS, and XS Max, were the first to market commercially with a 7 nanometer processor, whereas Huawei announced their processor without a phone at uh, IFA in Berlin before Apple released their latest version of phones. But essentially, these are 7 nanometer processors. So, in other words, the internal construction of the processor is using a 7 nanometer process, which is way smaller than the previous generation, which was between 10 and 14 nanometers. The benefit of that is they can cram a ton more. We're talking 6.9 billion transistors onto a little chip, and they can add more. So more GPUs, which is the uh, processing units which they use for artificial intelligence or machine learning, they can cram more of that into the same space. So the latest generation of 7 nanometer chips are un believably powerful. Some of the benchmarks coming out from the Mate 20 Pro and for the iPhone XS range are actually way ahead of laptops of similar modern 2018 version laptops. So the processing power that's available in these phones is pretty insane. The other benefit or the other major thing that Huawei announced is that the phone has three separate cameras. There's a 40 megapixel camera, which is massive in terms of just sheer megapixels, but they do some really really clever stuff. They also have a very wide-angle camera on the rear and a third um, camera as well, which is a 12-megapixel camera, all on the rear. And they use this machine learning, they use all this processing power to do the most remarkable things. I'll say it one outright, the finest low-light camera on the planet right now is the Mate 20 Pro. So if you're your needs are for the best camera experience. There is no question that the Mate 20 Pro, along with Leica, who have helped them develop the whole camera subsystem, have done an unbelievable job at bringing almost um, single lens reflex professional camera quality to a tiny little handheld um, device. 
to round the whole thing out, as I can see, we definitely are running out of time. I've been going on about Web Summit a little bit too long. But essentially, the new Mate 20 Pro is available in South Africa right now. It's retailing at a rather high price of 18999 so call it 19,000 Rand. It's available from all the operators at fairly reasonable packages. And it comes, as I said, with a Kirin 980, which is their latest processor. It also comes with 128 gig of storage and and six gig of memory it runs the latest version of android version 9 and obviously the ui which is called the emotion ui that's the user interface that sits on top and in fact the emotion ui is probably the one area of the may 20 pro that i don't enjoy thoroughly it's too busy it's too fussy it has too many options it's just a little bit confusing and a little bit clunky which tends to slow things down you do get used to it and it can be configured quite well but it is probably the the least slick and sophisticated part of the whole mate 20 the cameras are unbelievable it uses a brand new curved screen it's an oled screen it is not to be blunt as good as the screen on the on the iphone xr or xs or or uh, xs mass max and it's not quite as good a screen as the Samsung Galaxy Note 9, but it is a very, very, very good OLED screen. And it certainly does make um, an absolute pleasure to use. It also has one other feature that I have to mention. It is the first phone with a fingerprint reader under the screen. So there is no fingerprint reader anywhere on the phone. Simply touch the screen in the middle where a little picture of a fingerprint pops out and it reads your fingerprint right through the screen. It's like science fiction again. It is super cool. It's super efficient. And it's not quite as fast as a normal fingerprint reader, but it works amazingly well. To just round out the sheer amount of tech that um, Huawei throw at this device, it has also got a full 3D scanning face detection system, very, very similar in overall technology to the face detection system that iPhone uses. So you've got um, an emojis, very similar. You can animate your emojis using this system. So it's got a 3D dot projector. It's got a scanner. It's got an infrared reader. So it reads your face in 3D. So it's far better than the sort of iris scanning or face scanning that you get on other devices like Samsung. It isn't as slick as the units that uh, as Apple offer. In other words, many, many times for no particular reason, it just doesn't recognize your face. It asks you to retouch the screen to get it to try to read your face again. Whereas the Apple unit works in almost 90% of circumstances in the dark, with glasses, with hats, um, covering half your face. It's just almost freaky. The other problem is that for apps such as banking, um, Apple will allow the face ID to be used in place of fingerprints. Well, there is no fingerprints. So anyway, um, the the Huawei version does not work quite as well. And in order to use your your um, your apps or security and your apps, you have to use the on-screen fingerprint reader, which is not quite as slick. I don't know if that is a function of Android or whether it's simply a function of how they've implemented their face unlock but certainly not as slick as the way that it's been done in iOS. But overall, I must I must say that the the um, Huawei Mate 20 Pro is without question. There are so many other technical issues or technical advances in this phone that it is an absolute tour de force of technology. 
the GPS, it has not just one, it has two GPS systems built in. It has ultra-fast memory. It has an incredibly good screen. It is super light. It has a 4,100 milliamp battery with reverse charging. So in other words, it has wireless charging and put it on a wireless charging pad and it will charge twice as fast as any other phone on the market. But at the same token, you can actually tell it to reverse charge. So you swipe a little goodie. Uh, you tell it to switch on, and you can charge any other wireless phone or watch or whatever it is that charges wirelessly using the Qi standard. You can charge, you can reverse charge from your phone, and that's proved to be really useful in traveling. I mean, I've often found that the battery life of the Mate 20 Pro is anything up to two days without, with heavy usage, maps, pictures, flash, Using the internet, just unbelievable. And if you're running out of power on one of your other phones, like my um, iPhone, you can simply turn the two, put them back to back and charge the iPhone from the Huawei. So in a wrap up, there is no question that from a tech, from a sheer technology point of view, the Huawei Mate 20 Pro is the most advanced phone on the market, bar none. Fastest processor, best camera, some of the greatest tech in terms of reverse charging, Battery capacity, fast charging on the battery, 20 minutes can get you nearly 80% charge. It's it's probably the fastest charging phone I've ever used. Um, and, and a really good screen, beautiful build quality. It is quite the package. The only area where I find that perhaps it needs to be a little bit more refined, a little bit more polished is the user interface. It can be a little clunky, can be a little slow. Sometimes the gesture, in fact, it doesn't have a home button either. You can switch that off and use gestures are a little bit jagged, a little bit clunky, not entirely slick and smooth. And overall, the, the user interface can be a little jarring because it switches between the Emotion UI and standard Android. So it's, it's not the slickest user experience. But that being said, it's not exactly terrible. It just it takes a little bit of getting used to. So overall, I think Huawei have knocked it out of the park again. This is, without question, one of the the most accomplished phones that you've ever had the, the, the joy of playing with. And it is, for the price, an incredibly well-specified device in absolutely every technical thing that you can imagine. If you're an Android fan, there's probably no better Android phone on the market right now. I think the um, Samsung Galaxy Note 9 is perhaps a little higher quality, a little bit more solid feeling, a little bit easier to use, and it has a stylus. But overall, a great, great device from Huawei. If you're not into the Android system, then the new Apple phones have pretty much similar technology in most respects. Um, higher price, of course, but it's you know it comes down to choices and personal preferences. You certainly will never be disappointed with a sheer quality and technical prowess that the Mate 20 Pro offers. And on that note, I can see our time has run out. Till next week when I'm back in Johannesburg, this is Stephen Ambrose for Tech Talk right here on High FM.